Hi, friends. How are we doing today? I'm thrilled you're here, and thank you to those of you who are joining us online. We're grateful that you're part of what God's doing here at Capitol today. You know, I want to just underscore what Mackenzie said. William, we thank God for you. We honor you, dear friend. Thank you for what you do, for God and for his kingdom. You truly are a gift. Thanks for bringing up there, down here, with all you do, pal. We're honored to have you here in town. Today, friends, we begin a six-week series that I'm excited to teach. And we're calling it Overflowing Hope. For the last six months, the most important word in my life has been hope. It's been the subject of my thoughts. It's been the object of my prayers. I've read and reread every passage in the Bible that says anything about hope, how to get it, where to get it, what it feels like when you find it, how it hurts when you don't. Friends, I am convinced we need hope like we need food and water. Hope is the fuel we need in life in order to keep going, keep growing, keep planning, keep praying. The late author and ethicist Lewis Smedes put it this way. He said, there's nothing more important in this whole world than keeping hope alive in the human spirit. I'm convinced that hope is so close to the core of all that makes us humans that when we lose hope, we lose something of our very selves. And in the process, we lose all reason for striving for the better life we were meant to live. The better world that was meant to be. Let me put it baldly as I can, he says. There is nothing, repeat, nothing more critical for any one of us, young or old or anywhere in between, than the vitality of our hope. Our spirits were made for hope the way our hearts were made to love and our brains were made to think and our hands were made to make things. But then Smeeds warns, hope can get sick and die. Sometimes hope is murdered with shocking quickness when the one thing on which we set our deepest hope is blown out of our lives like a tent in the path of a hurricane. Other times, hope dies slowly sliced away in bits and pieces of disappointment. One thing after another that we had hoped for, whittled away like wood chips flying from a green branch before the knife of an indifferent whittler. Whether it slips slowly like drippings from a leaky valve or gets smashed on the rocks of reality, when hope dies inside of us, we're all but dumb for My friends, if you are looking for hope and you don't know where to find it, if you've lost your hope and you can't imagine ever recovering it, then this series is for you. And friends, I pray you come away from the next six weeks with overflowing hope. Let me pray that over you now. Lord, Some who are listening to this message right now are already overflowing with hope. And for that we say thank you. Thank you for the rest. Thank you for the relief. Thank you for the refreshing waters of hope that washed away fear and frustration. But Lord, I suspect there's a heck of a lot of people 
who feel like they're drowning today. Drowning in discouragement, drowning in dread, drowning in disappointment. For them, I pray this series serves as a life preserver to which they can cling. Better still, I pray it puts them face to face with the risen King Jesus who pulls us from the depths, dries us off, and reminds us we're loved. It is in his great name we pray. Amen. When we come together each week in person or online, we study the Bible. Because there's something special about this book. Throughout human history, God has revealed himself through its pages. But you know, the Bible can be gloriously misused and misinterpreted when it's taken out of context. And honestly, it can be so tempting to do so, especially when we can use the verses to suit our self-serving purposes. Now today, I fear that I will stoke that temptation as I share with you a few easy-to-misuse verses right now. Take, for instance, Psalm 50, verse 9. I will accept no bull from your house. Somebody just found their life first, didn't they? Here's another, Proverbs 31, verse 6. Give beer to those who are perishing. Okay, some of you will want to print the next one on signs to hang around the necks of some of the people you know. Proverbs 30, verse 2. I am too stupid to be human. Take heed, my friend, if your spouse leaves her Bible open to Job 19, 17. My breath is repulsive to my wife. How about this one? Galatians 5, verse 12. I wish those who are disturbing you might also get themselves castrated. That's really what the Bible says, by the way. I am not going to explain that right now, but I think I'll ask Mackenzie to teach that in the days ahead. Okay, for my single friends, for my single friends, have have you ever used pickup lines from the Song of Solomon? They're wonderfully effective. Try this one at at your next gathering of acquaintances. Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 2. Your teeth are whiter than sheep freshly washed. They match perfectly. Not one is missing. I think she'll love that. I'll read the next one from the King James Version because it makes it sound more romantic. Thy neck is as a tower of ivory. Thine eyes like the fish pools of Heshbon. By the gate of Bethrabim, thy nose is as the tower of Lebanon, which looketh toward Damascus. It's just like a John Legend lyric, you know? <laughs> Finally, my Republican friends will be getting to read this one. Ecclesiastes 10.2 The heart of the wise inclines to the right. But the heart of the fool to the left. (laughs) You know, I wish some Bible verses came with a footnote. Use only as directed. (laughs) And that's especially true for the verse that we'll study today. 
In fact, I, I think I've seen this verse taken out of context more than any other verse in all scripture. Here it is. Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. When I hear this verse quoted by well-meaning believers, when I hear it said aloud by desperate disciples, they almost always claim it for themselves, thinking it means the exact opposite thing it really means. I hope you'll see what I mean by the end of our time together today. Before we get there, I want to take you to, to my favorite Bible verse on hope. Now, it's my favorite because I found it to be most helpful in finding hope. It's like a theological treasure map that leads us to hope as X marks the spot. And it comes to us in the form of a prayer, a blessing. And I've been praying this for you all week long. You can find it in Paul's letter to the church at Rome, Romans 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now we will use this verse as a launch pad for our messages over the next three weeks. And though I've been praying this prayer for you, I think maybe you should start praying it for yourself. Paul prays, made the God of hope. If you study Paul's New Testament letters, you'll find it's not normal for Paul to refer to God as the God of hope. So his words strike me as significant. The, the apostle wants to highlight the nature of the God who's hearing his prayer. He's a God of hope. He's the originator of hope. He's also the object of hope. This was a personal designation for the ancient people of God. So much so, they called him hope. Psalm 71, verse 5. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Other ancient people groups during this time period prayed to their gods, but they didn't call their gods their hope. The writer of Psalm here makes it personal because it was personal to both him and his God. The songwriter knew he prayed to a God who cared deeply and passionately about his people, so he prayed, you're my hope. The, the Greek word that Paul uses for hope is the word elpis. And I gotta be honest, we often water down the meaning of the English word uh, to, to simply mean wish. As in, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. That's not the kind of hope we're talking about, friends. Biblical hope is more potent than mere wishing. Biblical hope is joyful anticipation. It isn't a passive resignation to whatever happens. Biblical hope is active, disciplined confidence. Now, tension always exists. It always seems to accompany hope. Because hope always involves waiting. In fact, the Hebrew verbs for hope are often translated wait. But it's not the kind of waiting you do in a waiting room. And it's not the kind of waiting you do in a checkout line. Biblical hope is eager expectation of God's action. Looking, longing, seeking. Maybe seeking in desperation, but, but always seeking in confidence. The, the word implies anticipation and endurance. And we desperately need both when life gets hard. Now friends, I find it interesting. In Paul's prayer for hope, he doesn't begin by praying directly for hope. Not, not that there's anything wrong 
with asking the God of hope for hope. That's a fine prayer on its own. But Paul's words reveal what he believes hope is and how he believes God gives it to us. He prays in verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. Paul doesn't pray that the God of hope will fill you with hope. He prays that he'll fill you with joy and peace. Next week, I want to talk to you about peace. But this week, I want to talk to you about joy. Because joy is a key ingredient of hope. When we think of joy, we usually think of happiness. And that's a good place to start the conversation. But we usually think of happiness as a feeling or a mood. Happiness comes and goes. Joy is different. Joy is a persistent sense of well-being that sticks with you no matter what you're facing. In his letter to the church at Philippi, Paul writes this in Philippians 4.4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Now my understanding of joy has been shaped primarily by Paul's letter to the Philippians. Because in that short letter, the word joy shows up again and again and again. And the significance of its frequency is amplified by Paul's circumstances. You see, when Paul pens this letter, he's in prison for his faith in Jesus. Do you ever feel imprisoned? Do you ever feel trapped by your circumstances? Do you ever feel cramped or fenced in, hampered or hindered? You're shackled by something, unable to be effective or efficient or fruitful. Maybe you get angry when you think of what you could be doing if you weren't so boxed in. Well, it's hard to be happy when your freedom is taken from you. But Paul's not talking about happiness. Paul experiences not only suffering, but also uncertainty. He is quite honest about it in his letter to his old friends. Paul can't say for sure if he'll be released or if he'll be executed. See, see, Paul knows something about the uncertainty that may have robbed you of your joy. And it's hard to be happy when you can't see what's ahead. But Paul's not talking about happiness. Imprisonment worked differently in the days of the Roman Empire. Paul wasn't sitting in a cell eating three meals a day. No, Rome made prisoners responsible for their own provision. So so since he couldn't work, the imprisoned apostle was dependent upon family or friends to help him out. But in his letter, Paul reveals that virtually everyone has abandoned him, which means Paul often goes without food and medical care. And anybody will tell you it's hard to be happy when you don't have enough. But Paul's not talking about happiness. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Rejoice. The verb form of the word joy. And he says, rejoice always. How could he say that and mean that? Is this just a moment of glee? Did we just catch Paul in a cheerful mood? Because Paul's circumstances don't give him a lot of reasons to celebrate. Now, friends, here's why that matters. If your pain has made you skeptical, you won't buy a message like this when it comes from the lips of someone who just won the lottery. 
Rejoice always. You don't want to hear this from a friend after she just got pregnant or just got the promotion or just got back from a vacation in the tropics where she lost five pounds and got an even suntan. No, if this message holds up, you want to see if the person's still smiling when the diagnosis comes back negative or positive. When the, when they have to shut the doors of their business. When, when their dreams are dashed on the surface of disappointment. That's when you'll be more open to listening. And that's essentially what's happened to Paul here. On paper, he's got nothing going for him. But, but you would know that by reading his words. And seeing a smile. And that gets my attention. Because the prettiest, the, the most popular and productive people among us don't wear smiles like Paul. They don't, they, they don't talk like Paul. Yet ironically, the, the joy and peace that Paul seems to have found is the reason we're chasing approval and accomplishment in the first place. So my friend, if you are sick or tired or lonely or disillusioned, don't be so quick to invalidate Paul's message just yet. He has the moral authority to deliver it. And here it is in some. You can get through anything if you go through everything with him. Let me say that again. You can get through anything if you go through everything with Jesus. Okay. Paul seems to surmise this is a big pill to swallow. It's a hard truth to ingest. So just a few verses later, he offers a little more information. He says in verse 10, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Now remember, Paul's imprisoned, far from Philippi. He's probably in Ephesus or Rome, destitute and forgotten. If you don't know, uh, the context of this letter, you, you should know, it, it's a response from Paul to a gift from his friends at Philippi. One day, uh, in, while in prison, Paul's old friend Epaphroditus shows up at his side with provision from the church. Now, apparently the church pooled their resources amidst conflict and crisis to help Paul. And friends, it was probably a fair chunk of change because it wouldn't have been worth sending someone all that way for just a few bucks. Well, Verse 10 is the beginning of Paul's thank you to his friends. But but it's usually misunderstood. Because he doesn't say thank you the way we would say thank you. In fact, if you read it wrong, you get the impression that what Paul's actually saying is, it's about time, people. But actually, actually, Paul's doing a delicate dance with his words. So he doesn't offend them. Now, I could bore you with an hour-long lecture about the complex social code of friendship and patronage in Greek culture. See, if Paul said the wrong thing in the wrong way, his audience would get the wrong idea or be insulted. Notice in in verse 10 what Paul rejoices in. It's not their money. It's their concern for him. Paul values their friendship more than their finances. But he also uses his thank you as an opportunity to teach. Paul thanks them for their generosity, and he means it. But he wants them to understand his outlook, how he thinks about his present situation. 
And this is what Paul says to them in verse 11. He says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. Now let's stop right there. Would you agree with Paul's assessment of his circumstances? If you were unfairly locked up for doing good, required to provide for yourself, but unable to provide for yourself while being deserted by the people you thought were your friends who would provide for you, would you describe yourself as being in need? Because I think I might. (laughs) Nevertheless, Paul says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. For I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Hmm. The the Greek word here translated content is the word atar case. Rhymes with guitar case. (laughs) And, And to our contemporary eyes, the word content is a gloriously lackluster word. Like the way my wife says fine. When Suzanne says, it's fine. Oh, friends, it isn't fine. Fine is mediocre at best. There's nothing fine about fine. Similarly, contentment strikes many as an unhappy word. We wonder if contentment will ask us to slap a smiley face on a meager, miserable existence and call it good. We suspect contentment is going to get us to to pretend we're feasting like kings as we settle for oyster crackers and tang. We, we, We think of contentment as an unpleasant, almost painful word. But in Paul's world, it's actually a peaceful word. Contentment is freedom from the stressful, agitated urge for more. It's a restful state of the heart and the mind and and which you know in your bones, deep in your bones, God has given you everything you need to do, everything he wants you to do. See, when you're content, it's not that you stop working hard, it's just you work for a different reason. It's not about proving yourself anymore, providing for yourself as if it's all up to you. No, when you're content, you're unshakable. You're unflappable. You're all the best parts of you in spite of what's happening to you. Now, before we move on, let me ask you. Is anyone feeling bad? Anyone feel a little guilty? Because you know you failed to maintain a demeanor of content this week. How about we establish a, a safe zone of group confession? Can we do that? Has anyone thrown a temper tantrum in the last seven days? Mm-hmm. Just, just me and Teresa, that's us. Just us. <laughs> I'm going to ask another question. Has anybody fibbed in the last seven days? On Friday, I took a break from writing this sermon to throw a temper tantrum in God's presence. No, I wasn't mad at God. I was just complaining. Yeah? And hear me. If you've thrown a temper tantrum this week, then I want you to look carefully Again at verse 11, where Paul says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Now see, there's a word that leaps off the page in that sentence. It's the word learned. I want you to hear the grace in that word learned. Contentment can't be turned on like flipping a switch. 
In my experience, it's not easily learned, like learning two plus two equals four. It's more like learning that the integral of e to the x is e to the x. You got to learn a little more math before you're ready for that one, right? But learn it you can, and learn it you must, if you want to learn to thrive in spite of your circumstances. Now see, I, I gave away Paul's secret a few moments ago. You can get through anything if you go through everything with Jesus. I'll tell you what I've learned. Over the years, I've found two behaviors that feed the beast of discontentment and thus rob us of joy and thus rob us of hope. There are two actions propped up by two attitudes. The first one is comparing. When you live a life of constant comparison, you're hurting yourself and you're hurting the people around you. That's true whether you compare yourself favorably or unfavorably. I recently spoke at a gathering of FCA, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes at the university. Now, they didn't ask me for athletic advice. And for the life of me, I am not sure why. But but I spoke to them about the pitfalls of comparison. And I shared with them the, this wisdom from Craig Groeschel, who observes comparing makes you feel either superior or inferior. And neither honors God. The fact of the matter is, comparison kills contentment. And that kills hope. If you want to make yourself miserable, just focus your attention on what you don't have, but they have. I'm telling you, we don't take this issue seriously enough, and it's no wonder we're so discouraged. It's so one, it's no wonder we're, we've lost our hope. Look, God, God takes this matter so seriously, it makes the top ten. In Deuteronomy 5.21, the 10th commandment reads, You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Okay, think about this in the ancient world. As God gives the 10th commandment, it's almost as if he takes us on a tour of our neighbor's backyard. And he says, see his house, see his wife, see his success. Don't covet these things. The word translated covet is the Hebrew word hamad. It means to lust, to to desire, to to delight in. Now, of course, desire in itself isn't bad. But what you desire and how you desire may be. What do you envy? I envy the guy from the Arby's commercials. See, I'm convinced if I had his voice, countless people would be compelled to put their trust in Jesus. Hi, friends. We have the peace. How how can you tell if you're getting envy wrong? How can you tell if you're struggling? One way is to take an honest inventory of your soul. Analyze your internal misery index when you see the success of others. Do you rejoice or get irritated? When you see someone post something of their lovely life on Instagram, do you celebrate with them 
Or do you get a sick feeling in your stomach? Friends, this is a roundabout way of killing your joy. Writing about the seven deadly sins, Joseph Epstein observes, of all the deadly sins, only envy is no fun at all. See, most sins give you an immediate rush of pleasure, but not this one. Most sins feel good in the moment and do their damage later. But envy makes us miserable the moment we embrace it. Why are we okay with this? But many of us are haunted by a nagging suspicion that the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. Hey, have you noticed? Someone always has more. Or there's this newer. Or there's this shinier. But, but, but the destruction of this kind of thinking is devastating. Proverbs 14, verse 30. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. It's a powerful little verse about finding happiness in your life. You looking for happiness in your neighbor's yard? You peeking over the fence? Eyeing somebody's stuff with envy because if you had their stuff, then you would be happy. You pining for opportunities or experiences that you weren't given, but they were given. Maybe you long for the talents of others, her knack for business, his natural athleticism. Maybe you wish you had another persona. You wish you could work a crowd like him. You wish you could be the life of the party like her. Maybe you don't like your body. I mean, you could eat perfectly. You could work out constantly, but you will never have the dream body she has on a diet of Dr. Pepper and haagen We harbor bitter envy when someone else is winning at work or winning in relationship or winning in parenting, but we overlook the fact that the very act of envying is rotting our soul from within. We make ourselves miserable as we nurture, nurture thoughts and feelings of winning and losing. Why are we okay with this? Why do we keep feeding the beast? If we constantly long for the life of our neighbor, we'll live a life of restlessness, writhing and never-ending discontentment and unhappiness. Now, we talked about how comparing ensures hope's destruction by feeding the beast of discontentment. But here's another meal we toss to the monster, complaining. <laughs> See, somewhere along the way, Paul learned, do everything without grumbling or complaining. Now, friends, look at this carefully. This is a comprehensive command. Paul says everything. He doesn't leave us any wiggle room. But but Paul's not being legalistic. He just wants us to truly live. Think for a moment about all your complaining. Does it really do any good? Does it change your circumstances? Not usually. And it often makes matters worse. So why do we keep feeding the beast? We complain when we feel wronged, when we're victims of injustice. Now, griping might be an attempt to reclaim a little of that justice, but it rarely succeeds. So why do we keep feeding the beast? Sometimes we complain out of self-pity. Maybe we want people to feel sorry for us, but it often drives people away from us. So why do we keep feeding the beast? I believe it was Mark Twain who quipped, don't complain. Half the people listening don't care. (laughs) 
The other half think you deserve it. Look, even the biggest complainers can't stand complainers. They complain about complainers. But Paul tells us what he's learned along the way. When he's not getting his way, he says, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. And he speaks from experience. Look at verse 12. Paul says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. Paul says, I've seen it all. I've been there. This overworked, underpaid, underappreciated apostle has experienced poverty and prosperity to a degree I probably will never know. The words translated need and plenty refer not just to economic circumstances. This could be financial, relational, vocational. It could mean abundance or poverty in any aspect of life. Whatever the case, Paul will not allow his joy to be dictated by external circumstances. Oh, we get caught up in the if-onlys. If only I had a new car. If only I had a new job. If only I had a bigger house. People without kids, understandably, long to have kids. People with kids would love for you to come take their kids right now. But Paul injects hope into our disappointment. He declares, I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. He says, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Now, I want to unpack a few of Paul's words because they illustrate circumstances in which the Lord will teach us contentment. And full disclosure, I'm getting ready to nerd out with with a few Greek words because I find them fascinating in application. First, when Paul talks about being in need, he uses the verb tapenao. Now, tapenao means to be brought low. It means to be humbled. And some of us are being humbled right now because we're forced to ask for help. Maybe financial assistance, maybe emotional support. See, tapenao implies weakness. It assumes you're dependent on someone else. Oh, but a lot of us hate being dependent on anyone but ourselves. We ruthlessly pinch pennies and control outcomes to avoid needing help. But friends, if COVID-19 taught us anything, it's that a heck of a lot more of our world is out of our control than we once thought. But but here Paul speaks softly into the ears of those who will listen. He says, I've learned the secret of being content when I'm humbled and I need to ask for help. Next, Paul says, I've learned the secret of being content whether well-fed or hungry. Hungry translates a Greek word, penao. Penao certainly refers to literal hunger, so it's something Paul was literally familiar with. But, but just like our English word, there's a metaphorical meaning embedded in the word. We're talking here about longing for something, pining for something we can't have. But we're not talking about envy. We're talking about disappointment. Think unanswered prayer. 
Think unfulfilled expectations. Marriage isn't what you thought it would be. Your senior year isn't going like you expected. You're you're grieving. You're mourning. Your heart is broken and you can't find all the pieces. Now, dear friend, if that's you, Paul is gently tugging on your sleeve and saying to you, I've learned the secret of being content when I'm deeply disappointed. Then he says, I've learned the secret of being content, whether living in plenty or in want. Okay, living in want translates the the, the word hustoreo. And hustoreo really means to miss out on something. And my friends, this word is ancient biblical evidence of FOMO. It's missing out on something, often because of one's own doing, often because of one's own failure. Now, I don't know about you, but I have found failure to be one of the heaviest burdens to bear. Because if I failed, failure means I've disappointed people. Failure means I've made a fool of myself. Failure means I'm not good enough, smart enough, talented enough. And if I did my best, that just means my best isn't good enough. But the Apostle Paul whispers to us, if we're listening, I've learned the secret of being content when I'm missing out. I've learned the secret of being content even when I failed. Dear God, help us learn what Paul learned. But but as Paul's writing, his readers in Philippi would have recognized that he's borrowing the vocabulary of the Stoics. You see, Stoicism was a school of philosophic thought popular in the culture for a few hundred years. Stoicism teaches, among other things, that the pinnacle of virtue is found when we reach indifference to changing circumstances. The the, the Stoics encourage their students to find the wherewithal in themselves to not allow their happiness to be contingent on fluctuating fortunes. Now, what Paul's saying here sounds very similar to the Stoics, but actually when you look at it carefully, Paul is saying something radically different. See, the secret taught Paul that circumstances are irrelevant, whether poverty or wealth, whether hand-me-downs or Armani, whether prime rib or PBJ. And friends, what is this secret? And now we come to it. Philippians 4 verse 13. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. You see, the stoic objective is self-sufficiency, but Paul's aspiration is Christ-sufficiency. Now, this text has been mangled and misused over the centuries. Okay, how many athletes have pumped themselves up before a game saying, I'm going to win because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? How many students have auditioned for a role saying to themselves, I'm going to hit that note, I'm going to get that part because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? Okay. But if you look carefully at the context, the verse actually means whether I win or lose, 
Either way, I'll be okay. In fact, I'll be better than okay. Because God will give me everything I need to do, everything he wants me to do. The 2011 version of the NIV conveys this idea nicely. It says in verse 13, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Okay. What's Paul's secret? I can get through anything if I go through everything with Jesus. Hear me. Your talent will fail you. There will come a day when you'll be surpassed by someone more talented than you. Your treasure will fail you. There will come a day when your money won't be able to help you. Your friends will fail you. Now that's particularly painful. We talk a lot about spiritual friendship around here. We're created for community. And hear me, you're not doing relationship with God right unless you're doing it with someone else. But the fact of the matter is spiritual friendship, even spiritual friendship, will let you down. Maybe you've been disappointed by a spiritual friend lately. Maybe a friend cut you with their sharp tongue. Maybe a friend sliced you with their selfishness. Maybe a friend failed you by being absent in my eye. Maybe you're convinced you needed a friend who could encourage you, carry you, strengthen you in this season. And friends, you do need friends like that. You need a spiritual friend who help you find strength in God. But just because you need one doesn't mean you'll get one right now. At least the way you think. Maybe, maybe God's weaning you off the strength of others. Because you are in fact using them as a crutch to help you limp along when what you really need is to be healed by him and thus find a greater strength. I'm telling you, you can get through anything if you go through everything with Jesus. Question. What does it mean to do something with Jesus? What does it mean to do something through him? And when I ask, what does it mean? I mean, what does it actually mean? As in, how the heck do I do it? Because I'd like to start my lessons yesterday. Well, I think the answer to that question is found in the various meanings of a single preposition in Greek. It's the word en. It's used 2,752 times in the New Testament, and I would argue it's one of the most powerful words in the Bible. Because that single preposition defines Paul's understanding of life and theology. One day I'll teach a message entitled, The World's Most Powerful Preposition. Well, in Philippians 4.13, it's translated through. But it's often translated in, or with, or by, or or because, or under, or among. Think of the phrases. Those of you who have read Paul's letters in the New Testament, think how many times you hear him say, in the Lord, or in Christ Jesus. In the Lord Jesus Christ. In, 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 Jesus, 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 right? And it's almost like, oh, this must just be like a verbal habit. It's like a tick. And he just tacks it on and makes it sound spiritual. No, this is the essence of Paul's theology. Those 
prepositional phrases describe our relationship or our potential relationship with Jesus. They describe our unity with Jesus. And I'll tell you the source of the word's power is the word sitting next to it. Jesus. We can find the strength to thrive in any and every situation in Jesus. Now, does that mean that Jesus is our source? Or does that mean Jesus is our teacher? Yes, it's the right answer. Well done. Jesus is both the source of our strength and the teacher or trainer who helps us find it. And I'll speak to you from experience here. Jesus is the beginning and the end of this whole thing. You want to find hope? Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And and hear me. If you've found Jesus, if you've put your trust in Jesus, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, To be sure, you, you may be searching for a greater connection to him so that you can draw more strength from him. But a lot of you get this because he's got you, right? When you read the Bible, Old Testament, New, heck, when you read Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, you'll find he talks about knowing Jesus personally right now. A cursory reading of the Bible reveals that the God of the universe seeks to be known, and he reveals himself most perfectly in Jesus. What if, my friend, you could know him or know him more? today. I want to pray that for you right now. Lord, first I want to pray for my friends here who do know you and have known you. But they're still struggling with hope. Because the waves of discouragement and disillusionment keep pounding their hope into the ground. And they they get the theology, but really, Lord, they need a new way to connect to you now. They need a new encounter with you today. So I pray you give it to them. And I pray you put within them a faith that inspires them that inspires them to seek you in their suffering, to seek you in their uncertainty, to seek you when they can't see you. And I pray you meet them there. I pray you meet them right there where they are. May they recognize they can get through anything if they go through everything with you. And so I pray for them that they would find a very real personal encounter with the person of Jesus. May your spirit make you very real to them today. Now I also want to pray that for the individual here who's just begun this journey with us. They're not sure of all this. But if there is a God, they want to know that God. Lord, I pray for them that they would find you personally as well. May they reach for you.
May they reach for you in the darkness. Lord, I pray you give them the faith to make a decision to follow you, to trust you with their whole life. That's our prayer. We pray in the name of the King. Amen. Amen. Okay, friends, let me give you some homework. Uh, the first assignment, not, not all these assignments are for everybody, but these are ways that we can seek him in this season. And so here's your first assignment, and it's probably the most important. Make a decision to trust Jesus with your life. A lot of us in this room have done that. And we're not saying we got it all figured out. We, we're not saying that Jesus has whisked all of our problems away. And we are, we have gloomy free days. Oh friends, we're people in process, just like you. But there is something about the hope you can find as you entrust your life to Him. Now hear me, it's not a decision to enter lightly. Jesus says you gotta count the cost, right? Okay? Because it, to trust Him, with your life means to trust his way of doing your life, okay? But but when I say count the cost, yeah, I want you to legitimately do the math, but I'm going to tell you from personal experience, hands down, best decision I've ever made. Bargain. Right? Okay? So so make a decision to, to, to trust Jesus with your life. And look, you could make it super special if you want, but you really don't need to. In the quietness of your bedroom tonight, tell him, I want to trust you with my whole life. I want to trust you with my whole life. Second assignment. Begin praying Romans 15, 13 over yourself each day. Okay? And I've taught you how to do this in times past. This is where you take that passage from uh, may, may you, the God of hope, fill me with all joy and peace. Just swap, swap the proverbs around. That's what, or the pronouns around. That's what I do. Where Paul says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace, I would say, Lord, may you, my God of hope, fill me with all joy and all peace. Make it your own. Pray it over yourself. Understand joy is a key ingredient to hope. So let's start with joy and ask him to fill us. While we're at it, here's a great act of love. And service to someone else. Begin praying Romans fifteen thirteen over someone you love each day. We've all got people in our life who are discouraged and who are down. What if you take a moment and just pray it over them throughout this season? Okay, I want to give you a fourth assignment. This one's weird, okay? So so brace yourself. Decorate for Christmas early this year. Now, some of you, some of you are already protesting the madness on your screen. And grace to you, I I have mixed feelings about this. Um, But here's why why I came to this. So think of, you know, throughout this, um, this series, we'll talk about hope. And remember how I said the Hebrew words for hope are also translated weight. Two sides of the same coin. Similar ideas in the Hebrew mind. And the whole idea of Christmas, or as we traditionally might call it, Advent, it is waiting. It's waiting for the coming king, you see? And there's something about, look, I, I get it, we can, can, can we just not argue about the pagan origins of some of our Christmas decorations for just a second? 
And, and I'm just going to dumb this down. And I'm just going to say, for a lot of us, those, those silly decorations really do remind us of him. And the season reminds us he came and he's coming again. And he's with us right now by his spirit. And I just wonder if putting up that blooming Christmas tree in your living room might be a visible reminder to you that that you can get through anything if you go through everything with him and he's right here, okay? For those who have ears to hear, let them hear, okay? Okay, I got a book for you. I got a book for you. Um, It's called Seeking God by Trevor Hudson. Now, I want to tell you about this book. This is probably my favorite book that I've read from the last year. I have a, I, I have to read like a thousand books a month. I may or may not be exaggerating. I'm both a student and a teacher. I have to read a lot. And, um, and I don't always get the luxury of really working slowly and methodically through a book. But I did with this one. I did with this one. And just devotionally with Jesus. And I'll tell you, it is one of the most powerful books I've read. Uh, the author Trevor Hudson, he's a, uh, a minister from South Africa whom I love very dearly. I've, I've been able to get to know him over the last couple months. And I cherish him. He is a man who gets it. He knows Jesus deeply. And he's learned a few things over his, over his life. He's in his 70s now. And I hope you can meet him someday because he's just absolutely wonderful. But I'm telling you, this book might help you to seek him in this season, whether it's a season of suffering or a season of success or a season of uncertainty, okay? Got some really helpful exercises. You know how books sometimes have exercises and you're supposed to stop and go do something, but you don't, you just keep reading? I didn't do that with this. These are really powerful exercises from from a man who has a lot of experience coming to know Jesus personally. More and more and more and more. Seeking is not something you do before you come to faith. Let me say that better. Seeking is not just something you do before you come to faith. It's something you do for the rest of your life if you're doing it right. Okay? So let's do it right. Let this be a good guide for you. Okay, quickly, uh, a song for you. And I don't even, I'm not entirely sure why this came to mind, but it's, a, it's an old song from about 10 or 12 years ago. It's called Nobody Greater by Vashon Mitchell. And probably, have any of you ever heard it? Exactly, none of you. Okay, believe it or not, it was nominated for a Grammy. Um, it is a powerful little tune. And, and here's why I, I was drawn to it, I think, this week. It's just sometimes our problems and our pain, it's just so great. It's so great. Certainly greater than I am. But he's greater than all of that. And, and for me, music has a way to redirect my focus. I use it as a spiritual practice to where I can, wait a minute, he's bigger than my problems. And by me connecting to him with music, that's one of the ways I get through everything by going through everything with him. Got it? I, perhaps the reason it came to mind, I hadn't thought of the song for a long, long time, a lot of years. Um, but it has been re-released and re-recorded on the latest Maverick City album. Okay, and uh, listen to it there if you want. If you don't have the Maverick City album, I don't know where you've been and what rock you've been hiding under. So why don't you download that while we're at it? Uh, stand with me, friends.
Sorry, did I just shame you for not downloading the Maverick City album? It's what we do around Capital Church. Sling that shame around. We have guests here and they're like, really? I hope not. May the Lord help us. Friends, um, here's a verse for the week. Philippians 4.13. I can do all this through him who gives me strength, okay? The image that's here on the screen and the, and the graphic that follows will be available for you to download from our website, okay? So be watching for them as we post them to social media. As always, if you'd like to receive prayer, send us an email, care at capitalchurch.com. we got a group of people who love to pray over our needs. And hey, one more thing. I don't have a slide for this, but I want to ask you to do something. If you have a friend a loved one, someone in your life who's struggling to find hope, would you invite him to come to church with you? And, and sit with him. This week we talked about joy and how it's a key ingredient for peace. Next week, or a key ingredient of hope. Next week we're going to talk about peace as a key ingredient of hope. Okay? And, and bring a friend with you. Sit with them. Take them by the hand. And, and who knows, you might be God to them this week. Okay? Here's my prayer for all of you. No matter your circumstances, may you find hope by choosing joy. No matter your income, may you find the faith to recognize less is often more. And more isn't all it's cracked up to be. May may God give you the wisdom to know when enough is enough. And may you learn the secret of being content by finding strength in King Jesus who will give you everything you need to do everything he wants you to do. Thanks for coming to church today. Grace and peace.